0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
1: In January 1975, 22-year-old Teresa Clark was a graduate student at Southern Illinois University Carbondale in Carbondale, Illinois, The university is known by the acronym SIUC. Clark was studying speech pathology and audiology. Clark was from Lamont, Illinois. She had three sisters and two brothers. In Carbondale, she lived in an off-campus apartment with a roommate. On the last weekend of January 1975, Clark's roommate was out of town. She returned home on Sunday, January 27th. When she walked into the apartment, she was shocked by what she found. Blood was splattered around the apartment. She went into the bathroom. In the bathtub, which was full of water, was the new dead body of 22-year-old Teresa Clark. The roommate immediately called the police. The medical examiner determined that Clark had been stabbed multiple times to the chest. She had also been sexually assaulted. There were no signs of a break-in or forced entry. It appeared that the murder happened in the living room, and then, as Clark was dead or dying, her body was dragged into the bathroom. The killer probably put it in the bathtub in hopes of destroying any evidence. The police interviewed Clark's friends and neighbors. The last time anyone saw her alive was on the afternoon of Saturday, January 26th. So it's believed that she was killed that afternoon or that evening. Clark's parents said that she usually locked the door, so the police thought she may have let the killer into the apartment herself. The police thought that this indicated that she knew her killer, or at the very least, she felt comfortable letting him into her apartment. A few odd things were missing from the apartment. This included a kitchen knife, a bathrobe, an inexpensive camera, an ashtray, and some of her school papers. So the police did not believe that robbery was the motive. The police investigated the murder and sent some evidence, including fingerprints, to the FBI. But no leads were generated from this. The murder weapon was not found at the crime scene. The police did not know if the missing knife was the murder weapon. Unfortunately, after a few months, the case went cold. Eighteen months later, in July 1976, 24-year-old Kathleen McSherry was a student at SIUC. She was studying administrative science. She had just transferred from Western Illinois University. For about a month, she had been living in a house off-campus with a roommate. McSherry grew up in the Chicago, Illinois area and had a brother and a sister. On the night of July 12, 1976, McSherry's roommate left for the night at about 10 p.m. Her roommate returned home the next day at 6.12 a.m. In McSherry's bedroom, she found the dead body of the 24-year-old university student. She was naked in a pool of blood. The medical examiner determined she had been stabbed in the chest and the back with a knife that was four to six inches long. The murder weapon was not found at the crime scene. She had also been sexually assaulted. There were no signs of a break-in or first entry. The police talked to the neighbors and one of them heard screams and dog barking around 4.30 a.m. So the police suspected that the murder happened around then. If that was the case, the police thought that McSherry had to know her killer really well to let him in her home in the middle of the night, or he possibly found an unlocked window or door. The police immediately connected the murders of Kathleen McSherry and Teresa Clark. Both were white university students in their early 20s who were sexually assaulted and stabbed to death in their homes while their roommates were out. The police eventually developed a suspect in both cases. He was 23-year-old John Paul Phillips. He was a local handyman who was known for his temper. He lived across the hallway from Teresa Clark, and then he lived just a few blocks from McSherry. He was considered a person of interest because days before the murders, he had verbally harassed both women. But the police found no evidence connecting him to the murders. So like Clark's murder, McSherry's murder went cold as well. Then it appeared that the murders came to an end. Four years later, on November 10, 1981, 30-year-old Joan Weatherall was working at a Holiday Inn close to the SIUC campus. She was a cocktail waitress at the hotel's restaurant. Weatherall, who had four sisters, was a former student at the university. She grew up in the Chicago area. After work that night, she planned on meeting some friends. She left the hotel at about 1am. She never showed up for the meeting with her friends. They assumed that she was just too tired and went home. The next morning, her body was found in a pond outside of Elkville, Illinois. She had been bound, but whatever was used to bind her was gone. She had been struck on the head with a blunt object, most likely a hammer. But the cause of death was asphyxiation. The police didn't have a suspect, and the case quickly went cold. The police had no reason to think that Weatherall's murder was connected to the murders of Teresa Clark and Kathleen McSherry. At the end of summer 1981, Susan Shoemake was 21 years old. She was from Chicago Heights, Illinois. That summer, she was starting her senior year at SIUC. She was a radio television major. She moved back to the campus a week before the semester started. Shumake had got a job at the campus radio. On August 17, 1981, Shumake worked at the radio station, and then left to go have dinner with a friend. But she never arrived for dinner. Her friend called Shumake's roommate, and the roommate said that Shumake never returned home. So they started calling other friends, looking for her. By 3 or 5 a.m., they couldn't find her, so they reported her missing. The day passed and then that night, the police were searching a footpath that students used as a shortcut. An officer noticed some brush had been trampled. He went into the high brush and found the dead body of Susan Shumake. She was partially nude. The medical examiner determined she had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled to death. The police believe that she was attacked shortly after leaving the radio station. On her body, the police found two hairs. The police searched the area, and they found Susan's backpack. Her wallet was missing. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios. Join us as we give you the best of the best health and wellness updates you can rely on for the treatment of chronic health problems.
1: Usually, she kept about $10 in her wallet. Also near the body, they found a toiletry bag. In the bag was a prescription bottle with the name Daniel Wollison on it. The police learned that Wollison was a 21-year-old man who worked on the campus. He was a handyman at an apartment building about a quarter mile from where the body was found. He recently had been released from jail for burglary and he was on parole. Wollison was questioned and he said he had an alibi for the time of the murder. He said he was with a friend, but the police couldn't locate the friend. Wilson provided hair samples to the police. The next day, he vanished. The police searched his room, and they found an odd note. having had been ripped up. Some pieces were in the toilet, and other pieces were in a trash can. The police collected the pieces and put them together. The note, in part, reads, I don't know why it's always me. I know I can't handle prison again. I know everyone is better off this way. My only regret is hurting my family. Initially, the police thought it was a suicide note. While the police searched for Williston, his hair was compared to the hairs found on Shoemake. They were not a match. So the police didn't consider him a person of interest in the murder. But the police did have another suspect. It was John Paul Phillips. At the time of Shoemake's murder, Phillips was working on a construction job on the campus. His hair was compared to the hairs left on Shoemake. It also wasn't a match, so he was not arrested. Shoemake's case also went cold. Many people believe that whoever killed Teresa Clark and Kathleen McSherry also killed Susan Shoemake. And most people thought that was John Paul Phillips. In January 1982, John Paul Phillips was arrested after he attacked a couple who were camping. At gunpoint, he tied the boyfriend to a tree and pistol whipped him. He raped the girlfriend. The girlfriend was able to escape and she found help. Phillips ran off. The young woman knew Phillips because they had gone to school together. Phillips was arrested later that day and charged with rape and attempted kidnapping, amongst other crimes. He went to trial in February 1983. He was found guilty on all charges. He was sentenced to 45 years in prison. In May 1984, Phillips was sharing a cell with a man named Thomas McHabby. One day, Phillips talked about crimes he had committed. He said he had murdered John Weatherall, Kathleen McSherry, and Teresa Clark. McHabby was released in June 1984 and he went to the police. He said that when Phillips talked about the murders to McSherry and Clark, he was rambling. McCabe said he got confused about what he said about each murder. But when he talked about Wetherell's murder, he gave specific details. McCabe relayed those details onto the police. The police realized it was information that only the killer would have known. One thing Phillips told McCabe was that he transported Wetherell's body to the pond in his ex-wife's car. The police found the car, and in the back seat in the trunk, they found 28 strands of hair. Three head hairs and one pubic hair could have belonged to Weatherall. In April 1986, 32-year-old John Paul Phillips was charged with the murder of Joan Weatherall. He went to trial in September 1986. Thomas McCabe was the star witness. The trial lasted two and a half weeks, then the jury deliberated for nine and a half hours. Phillips was found guilty of murder. In November 1986, Phillips had a sentencing hearing. Thomas Mokabe testified. As he was being let off the stand, Phillips tried to fire a prison made zip gun at him. But it didn't work and he threw the metal tube at Mokabe. Phillips was restrained and the court went to recess. On another day of the hearing, Phillips spat in the face of the assistant attorney general. Ultimately, John Paul Phillips was sentenced to death. After he was condemned to die, the district attorney decided not to pursue any other charges against him. Many people just assume that Phillips was also responsible for the murders of Teresa Clark, Kathleen McSherry, and Susan Shoemake. Phillips never got his date with a needle. He died of natural causes at the age of 40 in 1993 in prison. Seven years later, in 2000, a new form of DNA testing called polymerase chain reaction, or PCR testing, was available. It essentially makes photocopies of parts of DNA. This allows experts to create profiles from small samples of DNA. It turned out that the DNA from Susan Shoemake's case could be tested. But the evidence for Teresa Clark and Kathleen McSherry's cases could not because the DNA had degraded too much. In October 2001, the Carbondale police exhumed John Paul Phillips' body. They collected a DNA sample from his femur. It was compared to the DNA from shoemaker's case. It was not a match. While it was surprising, especially to Susan Shoemake's family, the police weren't without hope because they did have another suspect, Daniel Woolison. A toiletry bag with Woolison's prescription bottle was found near the crime scene. Also, he didn't have an alibi for the time of the murder. But the police were sure what had happened to him. He disappeared the day after the police had interviewed him, and when the police searched his room, they found what looked like a suicide note. It turned out that Wilson did not die by suicide. In 2001, he was living in New Boston, Michigan. He worked at an auto salvage yard. He was divorced, and he had one child. The police tried to talk to him, he didn't want to cooperate. He also refused to give a sample of his DNA. The police had hair samples from Wollison that they collected in 1981, but the hairs didn't have roots which were needed for DNA testing at the time. There was also not enough evidence to get a warrant to make Wollison give up a sample of his DNA. Then the police learned that Wollison had recently sold his car. The police talked to the new owner and he said that there were cigarette butts in the ashtray. They were there when he purchased the car. The police also knew that Wilson smoked, so they collected the cigarette butts and sent them for DNA testing. A DNA profile was created. It was compared to the DNA left at Shoemake's crime scene. It was a match. Wilson was brought in for questioning. The investigator then used a clever ruse. Sheeming's backpack was yellow, and he said that a witness came forward saying that they saw Wilson carrying a yellow backpack around the time of the murder. He also said they had Wilson's fingerprint on the backpack, but neither was true. Wilson then said he only stole $10 from the backpack. This statement was enough to get a DNA sample from Wilson. It confirmed it was his DNA left at the crime scene. 45-year-old Daniel Wilson was charged with murder. He went to trial in March 2006, 25 years after Susan Shoemake was murdered. The trial lasted four days. Then the jury deliberated for less than two hours. He was found guilty. A month later, he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. That left two cases open, which were the first two murders, Teresa Clark and Kathleen McSherry. Conventional wisdom suggested that John Paul Phillips killed them. After all, he confessed to the murders to his cellmate, Thomas McCabe. But the police learned from Susan Shoemake's case that nothing is as clear-cut as it seems, and when it comes to a murder investigation, you can never just assume. In 2008, the police reopened the case of the two young women. When the case was last reopened seven years earlier, in 2001, the DNA was too degraded. Luckily, one of those major changes that happened since the murders were committed 33 years ago was the development of a new method for creating DNA profiles. It's called Mini Short Tandem Repeat Sampling, also known as Mini STR Sampling. It allows experts to create profiles from tiny and degraded samples of DNA. Compared to early forms of DNA testing, it increased the scientists' ability to identify DNA by a factor of 100. The process is complicated, and if my voice doesn't really put you to sleep, then me explaining mini STR will. Suffice to say that the new DNA process helped get DNA from the evidence from the two crime scenes. The Illinois State Police DNA Lab used the technique on the DNA left at the two murders. They were the first law enforcement agency to use the technique. They were able to create a DNA profile. It confirmed what many people already thought. John Paul Phillips was a serial killer who killed Teresa Clark and Kathleen McSherry. After 33 years, the murders of the Southern Illinois University Carbondale students were finally solved. At the time of this recording, 63-year-old Daniel Wilson is serving a sentence at the Kauai Life Skills Reentry Center in Kwani, Illinois. He will be able to apply for parole in September 2024. This will conclude the episode.